Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid, and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just What we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio, was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED Public Radio, this is Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Risa Lagos. And this week on The Breakdown, from the disaster in Iowa to the muddle in New Hampshire, what is the path forward for Democrats? We're going to talk to Pod Save America's Dan Pfeiffer. That's right, the former senior advisor to President Obama, who now co-hosts the incredibly successful podcast, joins us to talk about the race and his new book. It's titled Untrumping America, A Plan to Make America a Democracy Again. Dan Pfeiffer, welcome to The Breakdown. Thanks for having me. It's good to be here. It's so, so good for you to be here because you 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 broke London Breed's record. The mayor of San Francisco was cut at the closest uh, in coming in for a live show. I think she came in at six twenty-five. You have not broken that record. Well, I would say I am a podcast host in a radio world, and so you show up five minutes late to a podcast, nothing yeah. happens. What's the big so. deal? They also don't have time limits, so this is a half hour. <laughs> yeah, show, right, Dan. right, right. We well, I will, I will try to be uh, less verbose <laughs> than I usually am. All right, no worries. So let's talk uh, about that muddle. Um, the, the melt. We had the meltdown. In Iowa, we got uh, some results in New Hampshire. Like, from where you sit, like, where, where, you know, where do you see things? There's a lot of anxiety among a lot of Democrats. Uh, how anxious are you? Are you biting your nails? Uh, I gave up biting my nails as a New Year's resolution about three years ago. I have adhered to that throughout this 2020 campaign. But my motto for 2020 is worry about everything, panic about nothing. Uh, although I got pretty close to panic about. 2 a.m. on the night of the Iowa caucus. But yeah, was, I didn't cross the threshold. That was a little rough. The way, I mean, I was sitting in Des Moines, so it was particularly rough. Uh, I would say, looking at the race right now, and we got a lot of miles to go here and some pretty big events in the next three weeks, but right now, Bernie Sanders is the overwhelming frontrunner for the Democratic nomination. What does that mean, overwhelming frontrunner? It means that he has the clearest path to getting the lead in delegates, getting an insurmountable lead in delegates. Because oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Yeah, because of delegate math. Delegate math, yeah. <laughs> and the reason the main reason for that is the state we are currently sitting in. California. I want to get to that in a minute. But before we get there, I mean Scott mentioned a lot of hand wringing. I think we can talk about Bernie and what, you know, that does to mm. some people in the party, his potential path. But more broadly, I keep thinking back to like twenty sixteen when Ted Cruz won Iowa or two thousand eight when, you know, Clinton and Obama were were duking it out. Like do you feel like this happens every time where the party with the most candidates feels like it's just 
everything's blowing up and, it, and it's terrible and it's going to be terrible for them? Or is something different about this year? Well, the, we have this looming existential threat of Trump. Right. Democrats believe that not just the fate of the country, but the fate of the planet is on the line in this election. So that at this is our always a very nerve wracking time for Democrats. We we're naturally in a naturally anxious party. But when you add the Trump layer to it, combined with the fact that a lot of the things that we like believed about politics were proven wrong in 2016. So we don't really trust our gut. Like you can't like I'm theoretically a person who should know a lot about politics. I worked in it for a long time. I talk about it for a living. And every morning I wake up and I'm like, you know what? This candidate, I think, might be the the best choice to take on Trump. And by lunch, I have a different opinion. And by dinner, I may be back to that first person. And it's because we just don't know. And that that is that is creating the this sort of electoral anxiety paralysis within the larger mindset of the Democratic vote. When you think back to 2016, do you see any echoes today with what the Republicans were going through when they had this big field and this outsider who no one thought could get the nomination? I mean, there, there are some similarities, and they kept thinking, oh, well, he'll stumble, we'll take him down, blah, 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 and now- yeah, and, 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 you, and that outsider is Sanders in this case. Yes. Right. I, like, I think Sanders and Trump- I, I find it very hard to put them in the same sentence because they're very different people. And the relationship of the party is very different. Even though Sanders is an independent who identifies as a Democratic Socialist, he has been a member in good standing of the Democratic Party for 40 years. He goes to lunch every week with the Senate Democrats. In the House, he went every week. He is on bipartisan. You know, he does fundraisers for the Democratic Party. And it's, he generally votes with Democrats. With the right. right. That's not even like, I don't even remember worrying about Bernie Sanders breaking from the Democrats during the entire eight years that Obama was in the White House. But there are similarities in how this is playing out, which is Sanders, even though Biden has been in the leader in the poll, Sanders has always had the clearest path to the nomination. He is strongest in the most of the first floor early states. He has a bottomless money machine that can just raise money. Good news for Sanders, he raises a ton of money. Bad news for Sanders, he raises a ton of money. And that is something that a lot. And Why is that bad news for him? No, no, no I'm saying, saying whenever when he hears bad news, bad news right? Oh, I see. So it's like you know, usually you look at all these other candidates who did poorly in in these races, and their money dries up. Elizabeth right. Warren is reportedly struggling to raise enough money to keep going. Biden, Sanders had a heart attack and raised millions of dollars. Right, just his support, he has his loyal supporter base, which that is what Obama had in 08. when we won the New Hampshire, the Iowa caucus raised a ton of money online. We lost the New Hampshire primary, raised a ton of money online. <laughs> and that that's a real advantage. Sanders is also benefiting from the fact that everyone is competing to be the non-Bernie Sanders. Yeah. And that's what happened with Trump. In that in New Hampshire in 2016, in the debate before then, instead of anyone trying to take out Trump, who was the leader, Chris Christie basically beheaded uh, Marco Rubio on stage. So everyone's taking out number two, no one's taking out number one. And that's been happening throughout this race, too, for Sanders. Not on Twitter. but Not, not on Twitter. Yeah, on the debate stage. <laughs> yeah, totally. Yeah. So you alluded to this before we get too deep into other candidates. How important is California? Because obviously the legislature and governor here moved up our primary to Super Tuesday. There's been a lot of debate over the last year over whether that would matter. It seems now like it does. It will. I thought I originally thought it was a mistake and that California would be better off hanging out like in April in the middle on its own so candidates would have time to campaign here and maybe even spend a little money on TV. Now it's South Carolina, California, and 14 other states or whatever it is. But I think because if this race continues where it is, Sanders is very, very strong in this state. I have seen polls that have him at 30 percent. 
and a bunch of other candidates right around 15. And the way delegate math works is in California, you get a proportional percentage of the statewide delegates, which I think is uh, 80-something delegates maybe. Yeah, that's right. um, basically, so if you get 30% in the polls, you get 30% of those. And then you the rest are allocated by congressional district. And so there's really a world where if Sanders wins California by 8 to 10 points, he could net 100 delegates over his closest rival. And that becomes a – because delegate, it's so hard to – once you get behind in delegates, Sanders could have an insurmountable lead in delegates coming out of California. And the race could essentially – Be decided. Be, yeah. But is that insurmountable assuming – Nobody drops out, or that there is even a if it goes to a two-person race, because delegates are done proportionally, and so once you get to two people, that actually makes it harder to catch up because now you're winning fifty-five, forty-five, mm-hmm. and so you're basically. Well, it's kind of what happened in wasn't it two thousand eight exactly when, and two thousand sixteen right and, and with Hillary just Bloomberg. couldn't uh, catch up. You can never catch up after Super Tuesday. So, Michael Bloomberg. <laughs> That's like, like I feel like the, the sort of eight hundred pound, yeah, gorilla in the room, fifty five like, billion dollar gorilla. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, I, yeah, where do you see him impacting what you're talking about there, and just like the path for all these other candidates? Because I do think that there are scenarios where that could not happen for Bernie. Right. Absolutely. I think what Bloomberg needs to happen is for Biden, Buttigieg, Warren to, in Klobuchar, to essentially collapse after South Carolina. He needs to be standing as the one alternative to Bernie and and then have an ability to bring the supporters of those other people in and get above, get and win some of these states on Super Tuesday. If he does not win any states on Super Tuesday, his ability to actually get the lead in delegates, I think, is very challenging. So you're saying that would have to happen before Super Tuesday? Yes, and I, don't, and I, and I think, as of right now, we, and we don't know what's going to happen, that seems unlikely to me. All right, we're going to take a short break, and when we come back, we're going to continue our conversation with Pod Save America co-host Dan Pfeiffer. You're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED Public Radio. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. And welcome back to Political Breakdown. I'm Scott Schaefer here with Marisa Lagos, as always. And our guest today is Dan Pfeiffer. He's one of the regular co-hosts of Pod Save America and author of the new book, Untrumping America, which we will get to, Dan. Um, But first, um, we were just during the break, we were chatting about Tom Steyer, who's been out there spending lots of money, not as much as Mike Bloomberg, but and seems to be eating into Biden's support among African-Americans. In one poll, at least he was in second place. What do you make of his appeal for, you know, African-American voters or anyone else? Steyer has been very strategic in how he has allocated his 
massive resources. And he has the reason he was on the debate stage the other night in New Hampshire was he has spent money in he has had the ability to spend money in Nevada and South Carolina where other candidates couldn't. So he was the only one on air. So he got to the five percent threshold you need to get on the stage. And by all reports, he has built a very real organization in South Carolina. He has recruited some of the top African-American leaders in the state. Edith Childs, who's a, who's a, a local politician who was the woman who famously coined the uh, fired up and ready to go speech for Barack Obama uh, 2008, endorsed Tom Steyer. Um, and that's a gigantic problem for Biden because he's being cross-pressured in a lot of ways. And if Steyer is able to take... 15% of the African-American vote in South Carolina. That is almost certainly coming out of Joe Biden's hide. How hard will it be to get Joe Biden out of the race? I think the vote, the voters of South Carolina decide that. I think both Biden and Warren are candidates who are pretty far behind the eight ball, but have a very narrow path. I guess what I really mean is for him in his own mind to say, you know what, this get isn't my Get in Joe's year. mind. Yeah. <laughs> I, look, I, I, I think- Is it something he wants to be doing? Running yeah. for president? Yeah. I, th- I think he, if Donald Trump, I've not talked to Joe Biden about this, but I've known him for a very long time. And I think if this was the race to try to take on President Jeb Bush or Marco Rubio or Chris Christie, Joe Biden would not be running. He, th- he believed at the beginning of this race that Donald Trump is an existential threat to what he would say the soul of the country and that he was the person best positioned to A, beat Trump and B, put the pieces back together uh, after Trump. And- the voters may make a different decision, but that put him in this race. I think if I imagine that he's a pretty savvy politician, and if the writing is on the wall after these first four states, then he'll make the decision he thinks is the best interest of the party. Do you think Warren is done, or do you think there's still a path for her? I think it's a very narrow path. It's the same path for Biden, which yeah. is you you need an upside surprise in Nevada. And then probably win South Carolina, and that's hard. That's very hard. But it, but she has a very good organization, in Nevada. If she can come in second, and maybe even beat Bernie in Nevada, if possible, then she's got another. She may get another look from voters. We haven't yeah. talked about Mayor Pete, former Mayor Pete. Now, um, he of course competed in the two whitest states, or two of the whitest states, and he did very well. And now he hits this wall. Um, what? Why do you think he's having such a hard time? And we should say so is Amy Klobuchar. No. Uh, of connecting at all with voters of color? I think in the beginning it was a question that they didn't know him. Right? He is not a person of national politics. He has not campaigned in those places before, doesn't know, has not actually had any real relationships with sort of national African-American political leaders. He's, the, he's had two other problems that have compounded that. One is the situation with the police department in, South, in the city of South Bend, which I think made raise real questions about how he handled race issues in his city. He has answers to those, but they've, people haven't found them super compelling. And then this narrative is formed. It's where it's sort of like every the only question people ever ask him about the African-American community is, why did none of them like you? Which, <laughs> which has is a, a hard question to answer. Yeah, it's, it has a self-perpetuating <laughs> effect. I think he and his campaign could have done more and maybe yeah. could do more to proactively do outreach. Do, like When he's on the debate stage, he always talks about future former Republicans. He never talks about the base of the Democratic Party. I think that's been an error. But- he has a very real shot to come in second and maybe even win in Nevada. And if, if he were to do that, that is the opportunity, the ability to – he will do that by getting the support of Latino voters. And that could begin to change the narrative, which could give him – if he can survive South Carolina, a shot in some of these other uh, Super Tuesday states. There was an article right. in Politico about how, how Latinos just saying – he hasn't reached out to us. You know, where are they? And, and I've heard that with African-Americans as well. Uh, it just seems like 
that would be like the, the easiest thing to do. Yeah, I, that I don't ha- I don't know when Bloomberg enough. certainly is. Yeah, well, yes. Despite Bloomberg. his own problems yes. with you know, I I don't know enough about the specifics of his outreach, but a lot of people I respect have found it lacking, and I think that that has been his campaign has been focused on Iowa, New Hampshire, and. You, the only way to be a real national candidate is to be able to compete in all four states at the same time. All right, let's talk about your book. Let's talk about your book. Let's do it. <laughs> so, He's not going to argue with it. Okay, <laughs> yeah. so the book is, the thesis is sort of that Trump is a symptom, not the main cause of the problem, mm-hmm. that even if Democrats win in 2020, there's a lot that needs to be done to sort of change the game for Democrats. And you start the book by laying out the ways in which Republicans have gamed the system mm-hmm. to really juice it in their favor. Things like redistricting, things like voter suppression efforts, judicial appointments. I feel like we've been talking about that for a while. So why aren't Democrats doing more to respond to these issues? I mean, because this has been like a decades or at least years long process. Right. I think I spent a lot of time wondering about this. And can you some, just answer for all Democrats yes, right now? Well, I can, I can only answer for myself. But I think... What happened really was the 2010 elections, right? The Republican, the fact that not only did Barack Obama, African American from the South Side of Chicago via Hawaii and Indonesia, with a father from Kenya, win, he won Indiana, he almost won Missouri, he won Virginia, he completely upended how Republicans thought politics worked. And then when they won in 2010, and they won everywhere, and that was a bad election to lose because that was the, that was the census that was gerrymandering. They they recognized the Obama election taught them that the demographics in this country were changing much faster than they thought. And so they had to do something about it. And so that is when in all the states Obama won, Wisconsin, Iowa, um, Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, all of them had Republican governors now. And they changed the laws. Voter ID. They did gerrymandered all of all these things to create some protection against this demographic wave in the country. And Democrats haven't had a lot of power since then. Now, where we won state houses in 2018, we people put automatic voter re- voter registration in, same day registration. Like there have been some good steps, mm-hmm. but there's a lot more to do. And Democrats, I think, have to widen the aperture about how big a problem this is. I still think most Democrats are naive and they believe Trump broke our democracy. They don't understand that we have Trump because of a broken democracy. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Political Breakdown from KQED. I'm Scott Schaefer, along with Marisa Lagos. Our guest today is one of the crooked media billionaires, uh, Dan Pfeiffer, actually <laughs> one of the former him. Obama yeah, guys. Who, to me, yeah. uh, you're part of that empire, right? Yeah. yeah. His new book is called uh, Untrumping America. If we were billionaires, we'd be running for president. That's right. And you'd be vilified by Bernie. Yes. Um, when you look at the, the, the landscape out there, a lot of people seem to feel that, you know, whoever the nominee is, that Wisconsin is sort of the, the most likely state to be the tipping point. Yep. You know, you agree with that? I do. I do. I think it is who the nominee is could make Arizona the tipping point. If you win, if you flip Pennsylvania and Michigan and you hold on to New Hampshire, which is harder than I think Democrats think, you can swap Wisconsin for Arizona. And what Ari- kind of a nominee would put Arizona? I think one who has real appeal to both the Latino community and to the suburban Romney Clinton style voters. People voted for Romney in twelve, and uh, who would who would that be in this field? Well, that, I mean that could that could be Amy Klobuchar, that could be Pete Buttigieg, it could it could it could be Elizabeth Warren, who is women candidates did very well in two thousand eighteen among that suburban cohort. Yeah, I mean, do you think? I know you point out in the book that there's this like 
battle royale where it's like progressive versus mm. moderate and that you know that swing voters don't necessarily fit into what we think of maybe mm. as like oh you're just a centrist yep. so i mean is there an argument for even a bernie in in a state like that I think I think Bernie if I, if Bernie were the nominee I think Wisconsin is most likely to be a tipping point. Bernie Sanders in a recent poll has the highest approval rating of all the Democrats among the Obama Trump voters. And he has a real appeal to white working class voters because he for two reasons. One, he seems his trade positions, he's the only Democrat left in the field who could take on Trump on NAFTA in USMCA and he is Bernie does not seem like a typical politician. Let me push back on that in one sense, and I know I'm going to hear from the Bernie supporters when I say this, but he, he's in some ways he's gotten a free ride. Oh, for sure. You know, because Hillary Clinton didn't go after him because she was afraid of alienating his supporters, which she knew she'd need. And no one's really done it in this other than, you know, the Medicare for all stuff. Uh, I mean, there's a lot of ammunition. You don't even have to look very far in oppo research to find things that could strip the bark right off of him. I mean, that is the thing that I want to hear more from Bernie Sanders in this campaign, which is how are they going to take on the socialism question at general election when there is a billion dollars? Honeymoon in the Soviet Union. Like all of those things, because... A lot of them will push back and say, well, our quote-unquote socialist policies like Medicare for All are very popular. But I think that is a misunderstanding of how the Republicans weaponize information in an election. They will make it about identity, not ideology, and they will try to otherize them. And that is exactly what they tried to do with Obama in 2008, 2012. You know, he's from Hawaii, and he's was he educated in a madrasa, and his father's from Kenya, and his name's Hussein. He's a community organizer. He seems different. But Obama was able to combat that by having a real connection with the American people that people understood, right? His family seemed, even if it wasn't white, like most families in America at the time, it seemed like a real family people understood. He had had the sort of struggles or like recently in his life yeah, around like, paying his mortgage and student loans. It doesn't feel like with Bernie, like we know that – like. As much as he's been out there, you yeah. don't know as much he's about gonna him have, personally. He's like, going to have to fight out. back against yeah. a campaign to otherize him, and I want to hear more about that. And We're, that is a great that is yeah. the looming question in his campaign. Can one of the things though about this like whole debate between Democrats and Trump is sort of um, back to Michelle Obama when they go low, we go high. Like I think you argue in the book that Democrats can't just take on the Republican strategy, but given all the structural stuff we just mm. talked about. Like, what is the path? Because what we saw at the end of Obama's term was even with a Democrat in the White House, McConnell stopped Mayor Garland from getting on the court. I mean, you know, it's it's they seem like Republicans seem like they've done a much better job than Democrats at just like playing the chess game. Well, Republicans believe I think this is the greatest asymmetry in politics, which is Republicans believe that political power is and is an end in of itself. And Democrats believe political power is a means to an end. And so we get political power and we take all of our political capital and we spend it on the Affordable Care Act and Wall Street reform. Republicans take that political capital and use it for things that give them more power. Like even the giant, they're like, well, they're like wait, wait, they passed a tax cut. The day they passed that tax cut, the Koch brothers walked over a half a million dollar check to Paul Ryan's super PAC. Like, it, it, like you're giving more money to your donors and give more money to you. And so, so Democrats can't play that game. But the second we get into power, we have a Democrat in the White House and 50 Democrats in the Senate, we should get rid of the filibuster. We should add D.C. as a state, because that's all it takes. If the people of Puerto Rico want to be added as a state, and that's up to them, make them a state too. And that now that solves one of our Senate problems, right? That's, that's really the kind of hardball that Democrats don't generally play. Yeah. Right. right. And I think and we, electoral, we have been, we, electoral college, we have been overly 
reticent to do things that give ourselves more political power. It's we sort of a high road in some ways, you could say. I think. I think. But it, it doesn't get you much. No, yeah. I don't. Th- I think high road is. You know, every Democrat believes making D.C. a state is the right thing. It's absurd that D.C. is not a state. It is absurd that the people of Puerto Rico are American citizens, and if a, someone from Puerto Rico moves to the United States, they can vote in the presidential election. But if they stay in Puerto Rico, they can't. That makes zero sense. They're all caucusing. Right. They, I mean, they, they, get, a, they get a voice American in the- American Samoa. Pri- yeah. and I- <laughs> but we, like, we, we feel like we're cheating if we do, even if we think it's the right, it's not even dirty politics, it's the right thing to do, but we're just reticent about it. And we have to lose that because political power is not a bad thing. It, is, it allows us to do the things we care about. And frankly- this fate of the planet is on the line with climate change. And so for all the people who are like, pass a Green New Deal, but we have to preserve norms in the Senate, I don't want to hear any more about what you're going to do. I want to hear how you're going to get it done. We've talked a fair amount about Barack Obama, of course, your former boss. And he has been scrupulously quiet, I would say, about mm. this. Yes. Uh, but no doubt he's thinking a lot about it. And I don't know if you have any insights either from talking to him or just knowing him. But you know, what do you imagine he's thinking and saying, you know, just quietly to people? And what are his concerns? Like, how, how who's he going to vote for? <laughs> That's a great question. I, I have no idea. I have not talked about who he's going to vote for. I would bet he's, he Illinois votes a little bit later, if I remember correctly. And so he's got some time to, you know, he'll have eliminate a, some choices. He'll, he'll have a narrower menu of choices, probably. And I, I would imagine he would, he, he will have two perspectives. One, he knows what it takes to win an election. He knows what it takes to do the job of president. And so he will look at both of those things. He has been silent because I think he believes, and I think he is correct, that it's very important that no one look like they're putting the thumb on the scale for anyone. He kind of did that a little bit, I thought, when he was talking about old white leaders who don't. I, I, I know that that was interpreted that way, but I and but I don't think he meant to do that in any way other than pay respect to many of the world leaders he's been dealing with who mm-hmm. – uh, younger people, younger people, women. and the people who won in 2018. I don't think that was he would never in, intentionally undermine take Joe a sh- Biden. Never, not for one second. Yeah. So you talk in the book too about how to go after Trump, and you say to attack his strengths, not his weaknesses. What does that mean? Like, I think Democrats have the have this belief. Many Democrats, not all Democrats, have this belief that if we could only convince voters how terrible Trump is, they would just have it like the light bulb would go off. They would flock to us. They would, you know, put on hashtag resist shirts and we'd be fine. How's that working out? It's not great. Uh, But what I think we have to recognize is that voters are smarter than we give them credit for. Right. Like put aside like the MAGA base with it really appeal that where there's sort of Trump's Trump's cult of personality. The vote like most voters knew what they were getting with Trump. They knew he wasn't honest. I mean, he said he was going to blow up boxes and drain the swamp. Yeah. And maybe, I mean, you can debate whether he's done that, but he's certainly blown up boxes. He he promised to be, to to shake up the system. And for a lot of voters, they believe that-, that Well, in for, some ways he has. For all, yeah. I mean, he has, and it is up to the Democratic nominee to explain why he is sh- either, if they're saying he's shaking up, he's shaking up in the wrong way, and the way he's done it has hurt your lives. Are you surprised at all that he hasn't tried, even a little, it seems, to reach out to voters who might be gettable for him with, say, infrastructure or you know just some kind of like good government sorts of things that wouldn't cost him anything with his base? I think he is in, sort of psychologically incapable of that. It's just not how he operates. He... And yes, there was a world in which he could have done very smart things, and the Democrats probably, much of their not in their best interest, gone along with it, and expanded his, raised raised his floor in this campaign, mm-hmm. and he has not done that. Like 
I, you know, I talk about this in the book, but I like I, I think Trump is an existential threat to everything I care about. But the thing that really scares me, even if we win in 2020, is that if we don't make some of the reforms I'm talking about in this book, the next Republican president is going to be a smarter version of Trump, someone with more of an attention span. Yeah. So back to that strengths and weaknesses. I mean, let's talk immigration. We only have a couple of minutes yep. left. But like, how do Democrats thread that needle? Because that is definitely an area where he has gotten a lot of traction, even with people who may not agree with him on other stuff. I think two things. One, it's important to remind people that Trump has been in charge of the immigration system for nearly four years now. So for all these things that he says are wrong, why didn't he fix them? So that's part one. Part two is we have to call out the game. Democrats too often play Trump's game, which is he talks about this caravan. We give into the premise of it by talking about how tough we are on border security. Tell people why he's trying to scare them, right? He's trying to scare you to distract you from the fact that he wants to cut your Social Security and your Medicare to pay for a massive tax cut for billionaires. He wants to distract you from the fact that your taxpayer dollars are going to his pocket every time he goes golfing. He wants to distract you from the fact that under his watch, Amazon, you pay more for your Amazon Prime subscription than Amazon pays in federal taxes. So that's what, like, you have to call out his game. That is the best politics against Trump. We are really short on time, but do you think the Supreme Court could do anything, you know, come June that might upend Trump? I mean, I'm thinking particularly about his finances. I, I would bet. I would never you I would I would never bet on the Supreme Court doing something that would hurt Trump in an election year. Yeah. So that's a no. That is a no. Yeah. So uh, well, we have another 20 seconds. Uh, so so what gives you optimism then? The people that I meet when I travel, the the generation of people who young people, young people who the people who marched in airports, the people, the women's march, the kids from Parkland. I think that there is this possibility if we do things right in this election, the next few years, that they. The great irony of Trump's election is that the election of our worst citizens sparked a generation of active citizenship in this country. All right. We're going to leave it right there. Dan Pfeiffer, thank you so much for coming in. This was so much fun. His new book is called Untrumping America, and it comes out, I think, February 18th. February 18th on Tuesday. All right. Very good. Thanks so much for joining us. That does it for this edition of Political Breakdown. It's a production of KQED Public Radio. Our producer is Guy Marzarati. Our engineer is Seal Muller. KQED's team includes Holly Kernan, Ethan Lindsay, Vinny Tong, Jonathan Blakely, and Julie Kane. I'm Marisa Lagos. Find me on Twitter at MLagos. I will find you. I'm Scott Schaefer. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Scott Schaefer. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next week from Vegas, baby. Vegas, baby. I'm Sasha Coca, host of the California Report magazine. Every week, we bring you stories about what connects us in the giant, diverse Golden State. Because what happens in California changes the world. I love this place. We were once seen as, like, the place to be California. The land of milk and honey. That's where you go to Sunshine State. But we just have challenges right now. KQED's California Report magazine. New episodes drop every Friday, wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member. You get special access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. Plus, you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon. It's in you. Please be in it. Visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now. That's podcast 
with an S. Thanks.